Have you ever wondered whether bilateral or unilateral training is more effective of improving your performance? Well, wonder no more. So welcome to our new series on YouTube and audio, if you're listening to it on the podcast. So this is kind of a, a thing we wanted to do for a while, but we obviously didn't have the time to do. But this is on kind of selecting every Monday. We're going to be picking papers that we feel are interesting, relevant and fairly well designed that we can kind of distill the information for you in a format where you can consume it while you're doing other activities. So you can get some knowledge on the latest research, uh, maybe hopefully get some practical implications for your own training or maybe just gain some useful knowledge on the world of strength conditioning so you can kind of accrue some better learning and uh, hopefully you enjoy it. And today's one, thought pretty interesting, pretty basic, but it's a, it's a good study. Today's research comes from the UK. Title is A Comparison of Bilateral versus Unilateral Bias Strength and Power Training Interventions on Measures of Physical Performance in Elite Youth Soccer Players. Did you learn that off by heart? I'm reading it. <laughs> so aims of the study are were to determine whether bilateral and unilateral strength and power training improves measures of physical performance in male youth soccer players. A secondary aim was to compare both training interventions in an attempt to determine which training method was superior to improving measures of physical performance. So our sample size was 23 youth elite soccer players. They were in an academy training system and they had been for a few years at this stage. Their average age was 17.6. I was 17 and a half, mom. Plus or minus 1.2 years. They had a minimum of two years resistance training, which was useful. Uh, 11 were put into the unilateral training group and 12 were split into the bilateral training group. So they had a five-week intervention. Or sorry, six-week intervention, two times a week, in addition to their routine strength conditioning program and their soccer sessions. So this is in the pre-season for 2020. So they were doing their strength training with a strength training coach or strength conditioning coach and their normal pitch sessions in addition to this program. So the exercises the unilateral group selected were doing were rear foot elevated split squats, single leg counter movement jumps, single leg drop jumps and single leg broad jumps. The bilateral group were doing Regular old back squats. Uh, everything was to at least parallel. They had a consistency measure using resistance band set up in the squat rack. The bilateral group were also doing counter movement jumps, drop jumps and broad jumps. So the bilateral group's program essentially was three sets until power output for the back squat was reduced by 10% of their maximum power value. Uh, so they did this for three sets and then they did two by five drop jumps, two by five horizontal drop jumps. 2x5 counter movement jumps and 2x5 broad jumps. So our... Oh my God, where's my piece of paper? That's not it. Sorry. So the single leg... Um, the bi Or the unilateral group essentially repeated the exact same program but with their single leg, their unilateral movements. So they did uh, rear foot elevated split squats. They did three sets until it reduced by 10% of their power output. And then they did 2x5 single leg counter movement jumps. 2x5 horizontal drop jumps, 2x5 uh, uh, single leg broad jumps. And then what was tested, a, so the metrics, their, their way of testing what their physical performance output was, was single leg output, uh, interlimb asymmetry, bilateral deficit, uh, change of direction speed, linear sprinting, and jump height. Yeah, so 
what Gurf was talking about there. So he went through like the training protocols for each, obviously with like a kind of test intervention retest design like this, you'd have the exact same testing happening at the start as you would at the end. So he talked about strength, like their kind of strength test at the start would be, uh, in this case, it was a one or one rep max on the back squat. It was a one rep max on the rear foot elevated split squat. It was a counter movement jump. So that was done. A uh, counter movement jump is basically you start with your hands over your head. You swing with your arms down and you jump as high as possible. So if you just hold somebody to do like a completely natural maximum vertical jump, that's the jump they do. Uh, then you had obviously the single leg versions of those. So single leg counter movement jump left, single leg counter movement jump right. You then had a broad jump. So that's moving uh, laterally as far as, so basically just covering as much ground in front of you with a normal jump as possible. Uh, then you had single leg uh, broad jump left, single leg broad jump right. Then they tested reactive strength index. So reactive strength index is something you'll see a lot of the time in in studies like this. It's a combination of max jump height with uh, kind of reaction speed on the ground. It's It takes place over like a battery of tests. Um, or there was another way of, of calculating uh, reactive strength index where you'd basically gradually increase the height of a box um, and you'll be measuring their their reaction time on the ground, so contact time on the ground uh, in combination with maximum height of the jump they were able to achieve. So reactive strength index is something you'd commonly see in papers too with agility and sprinting um, and jump performance. Then they did single leg versions of those, so single leg reactive strength index left uh, and on the right. Then they had a 10 meter sprint and a 30 meter sprint. They had a 505 test left, 505 test right. What a 505 test is, it's a common test of agility. So you'd have uh, three cones set up. So you'd have a cone at zero meters, say the goal end line. You have a cone at 10 meters and a cone five meters beyond that again, so at 15 meters. So if we call those cone A, B and C, I start at A, once I sprint past B, my timer starts. So in this case, it was done with timing gates. I'll then go to cone C, so the furthest one away. I turn around on the left-hand test, I turn to my left, and I come back past cone B and all the way to cone A again. So it basically just tests your turn around from B to C and back to B again. It's a test of your ability to turn 180 degrees, um, and you'll see some variance in people's lefts and rights that we're going to talk about later. Then we have change of direction left and change of direction right. There was other things they calculated. So when you do all these tests, you obviously get like simple outcomes. Um, like you do your one rep max test, you'll get a simple outcome for your max strength or your like your bilateral strength. But then you have other things that will be calculated uh, post-hoc, which will be bilateral deficit and asymmetries from right to left. When you look at like their testing protocols, they had uh, two different days of testing. So day one, they did uh, counter movement jump. They did single leg counter movement jump. So they did all the, the jumping basically on day one. Then they took a, a 72 hour break uh, and they did day two, which was one rep max testing uh, on their back squat and one rep max testing on their rear foot elevated split squat. Before each of the days, they had 24 hours rest. Um, so obviously in the 72 hours break in between day one and day two, 
they probably had two days of training, then another rest day, and then they did their testing again. Um, so that's what the that's what the testing itself looked like. Okay, so then looking at the results, right? Um, obviously when you're looking at papers and this is the first kind of uh, paper review we're doing as a video, so we're gonna try and just drip feed people information about kind of reading scientific papers and not just overload this too much. But when you're looking at papers and you'll see like there is differences and then there's differences which are significant. So when you're looking over papers, most of the time when you go to a results section, you'll see there'll be a star or a cross next to the differences that are significant. Um, significance just like is a statistical uh, calculation and may not actually be that it's it's going to make a significant difference to you in your training, uh, but certainly you need to look for significance in your results data. Okay, so we'll start with the, the unilateral group, right? So they had a significant increase in 1RM for their rear foot eleva elevated split squat. They had significant difference in their single leg counter movement jump on the left side. They had significant difference in the single leg broad jump on the left side. They had significant difference in 10 meter sprint speed. And they had significant difference in the 505 reaction or 505 agility test on the right side. Then our bilateral group, so the group that we're training with both legs, had significant difference in back squat 1RM, in rear foot elevated split squat 1RM, in broad jump, in 10 meter sprint speed and 30 meter sprint speed, and change of direction left. Okay, so what does this data mean, right? So we have significant changes or significant increases in performance following the intervention on both sides. Uh, the obvious thing here, right, is training specificity, one out. What we expected to happen would happen. So the bilateral group group got better at bilateral things. So their broad jumps, their 10 meters, their 30 meter sprints, their back squat 1RM. They also got like the rear foot elevated split squat is something that like is slightly bilateral. And they also got better at that, right? Then there's some interesting findings in the fact that you have asymmetry between the left-hand side and the right-hand side and the training effects from training both legs. So obviously, like, they were doing unilateral work, but they were training both legs as they were doing unilateral work. So they had an increase in their 1RM rear foot elevated split squat, which is to be expected. The interesting stuff comes when you look at the counter-movement jump left and the single leg broad jump right. So, like, both of the single leg jumps uh, on the left-hand side seem to significantly improve, Whereas on the right-hand side, they weren't shown to significantly improve, right? This could be due to any number of limitations, but a very, very likely limitation is the level of asymmetry between left and right foot on near elite soccer players or like elite soccer players mm -hmm. is going to be significant, right? So if I'm constantly, even though I might be very, very proficient off both feet, but if I'm constantly kicking or striking a ball with my right leg, my left leg, the level of strength and stability to be able to hold my body in one place as I swing the other leg as as hard as I possibly can is obviously going to develop some asymmetries. And like that could be up to 12 years of kicking a ball. So they could have started when they were something like five years old. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And kicking a ball, especially if they're at least youth and they're in academy since maybe they were like 12. So they definitely started playing football or soccer when they were like five years old. Yeah. So, so the, the amount of repetitions, and as Eric said, the maximum repetitions, maximum force in their 
predominant leg, the one that they favoured, is massively like you would almost never use your um, your least favourite leg, like your kind of your lame leg as such in terms of like when you're playing soccer or football or any of these. And kind that's of things. like the non-dominant leg is going to be so much stronger in terms of stability and actual strength due to the fact that you're constantly standing on that non-dominant leg. So we'll talk about limitations of the study and how we might design the study a small bit better to take that into account later on. Um, but it is just, it's an interesting one. It's also an interesting one when you take the change of direction test, right? So the agility test of 505, when they're turning to their right-hand side is then found to be made stronger by the intervention, which turning to your right-hand side, your right leg becomes kind of inert and it would be the left leg you're driving off having turned to your right-hand side. So all of that data or all of those that are kind of backing up and leading up to the fact that there's possibly asymmetries there prior to starting um, and that training effect might be different from one side of the body to the other. Besides that, the data shows that training specificity is usually the number one thing. So like it's like every training program in the world, you need some sort of specificity uh, to get better, to get faster, stronger, more powerful, just as you'd expect. The, the back squat group got better at back squatting. The unilateral group got better at unilateral yeah. rear foot elevated split squats. Like, everyone got better at the stuff that they were training, you know, which is absolutely of no surprise. Um, were you happy with the... Oh, no. Yeah, so, like, I think the good things about this study, right? Yeah. Um, They're being done in a, in a fairly well-trained group. Like, uh, for people who are used to reading scientific studies, and especially in the realms of strength and conditioning, and, like, any kind of physiological adaptation... It's always young adult males are used. Uh, and if it's in a, a training intervention, they usually have two years of strength training. So I think a lot of the time or almost all the time, the studies that have those criteria are taking college kids yeah. um, and college kids who have varying degrees of strength training, like using a group like this to fulfill those criteria you see in, in almost any strength training study, but actually fulfill it in a very structured way and where you understand the amount of training and the level of experience the kids have before they do it. Yeah. Like, that's a, a very, very definite strength of the study. Yeah, so, like, the pros are, they had at least two years of strength training, and, like, that was under, as they said in the study, under, like, the guidance of qualified strength and conditioning coaches. Now, obviously, we have no idea of the quality of those strength and conditioning coaches, who they were, and have obviously... But they're probably good, like... They probably are They're in a, like, yeah, yeah, yeah a premiership a, academy. There's a good chance that if they were not good at their job, they would have been outed at this stage. <laughs> but so they had at least two years of resistance training. They would have had... Academy training would probably started somewhere around 12, 13 years old. So they would have started with um, structured training environments. They, like, manifesting themselves as athletes. And that's their goal in life is to be one of the highest... The highest paid athletes in the world in terms of earning like upwards of between 50 and like 300,000 pounds a week, you know, so yeah. like they, they are, they were not half-assing this, like many of these were gunning for this. So they were taking their, we, we've, we can say with some good certainty that they were taking their training as seriously as you can expect any teenagers to take it in terms of like kind of a, a private environment, a non-state sponsored environment here. So we had great subjects. Um, We liked most of the, the exercise they chose were good. I like, as in yeah. most of them. So we have one issue. We'll get that in the cons in a minute. Uh, any other pros you, you liked about it? Yeah, like another pro of this is that they're using 
very valid measures, right? So reactive strength index is something that will come up all the time. It's very, very well studied. In terms of like testing their back squats, like really good, like well-documented testing protocols. They're using movements that the players will be very, very used to doing. So like counter movement jumps, broad jumps, those 505 agility drills. There's nothing like super flashy there. They're not like, this is a study that you could go away and get a first year sport and exercise science class to replicate and probably get very, very similar results. So like you have to have positives or like that's a a very definite positive is it's super relatable. It's very repeatable. And like the reliability of the measures they picked. Yeah. Um, is like is is a significant thing in itself. Yeah, like the the spectrum, the sheer amount of physical performance measures that they used were were significant. There was a lot of, and I don't mean that in terms of like statistically, like it was just a lot of measures they yeah. used, which is with the more the better, realistically in some ways. Uh, so you never want to have too little in terms of things like this. So they were really looking to gather some you know useful data. Um, so the pros were, um, the vast majority of the exercises were good. They were simple. We had. Good quality athletes. We had um, a reasonable number of athletes, I suppose. That, yeah, uh, that I think be, that is like it. That's right on the border. And then we had a lot of um, a lot of measures taken, and they seem to be taken fairly decently. Yeah, by the looks of things. Uh, so they were in a, a good environment for the study, and I think so. That overwhelmingly, there's a lot of pros to the study. Yeah, to be fair. yeah, yeah, yeah. Every week definitely. won't be like this. Now, some of the cons would be that number is. While it's significant enough to be like, that's an interesting study and there's useful results from that. It's also, it's probably not enough in terms of like you probably want several different runs of this over the years, maybe with some, maybe four or five times the number of athletes to really, really get a, like a significant number of our significant kind of results from this, I would think. Yeah, like the the limitations they, they listed were, at, like as far as I remember. Yeah. They're athletes who are doing other training at the same time. So like this was done in an off season or a pre-season block, um, but they're still doing other training as it's going on. Right. So there's yeah. other training effects happening. The other things they listed were uh, like N equal to 23. Like if you do a basic power analysis, you'll probably like 23 is probably not far off. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting populations like this where it's homogenous and everyone's really similar you should be able to get a group of 30 or 35 athletes um, for this. So, like, the amount of people who are doing it isn't huge. Uh, they had one other limitation listed. But, like, the other limitations, aside from what they've spoken about, um, and we kind of mentioned it earlier, is the rear foot elevated split squat isn't, like, isn't solely unilateral. So, the same way that if I'm doing an assisted pistol squat and I'm holding on to something each side, it's not a pistol squat. So like you you get some assistance from the other leg and there is a very definite training effect happening on the other leg when it's raised up behind you. And considering that that re-elevated foot squat, split squat was their kind of only strength movement in the unilateral group, it's kind of, um, it does muddy the waters a little bit because all the other movements listed are primarily power movements. So when we have the back squat, that we know for definite that that is a bilateral movement. Uh, but when we have the one unilateral movement that is kind of a little bit hazy in terms of is yeah. it a unilateral, bilateral? Now, it's obviously primarily unilateral. That's fine. But we'd probably, 
if at all possible and there might have been reasons why they didn't but if you would have looked at something maybe we were kind of trying out there maybe if they did something like a box step up but instead of um kind of like a pistol setup as opposed to on a box uh, where the leg is to the side where you could if you eliminated the initial kickoff so sometimes we do box step ups you kind of kick off with your right leg whether you intend to or not but if you something more definite in terms of unilateral strength and there's definitely possibilities out there especially if you're looking for like a short six week period yeah you you probably could figure out something that's a little bit better like there it is i think something like with a lot more constraints yeah so like where you have a leg shackled or like you're in some sort of apparatus that would stop you moving your other leg like yeah uh, like those are used extensively in other studies and i think they definitely could have been used here it's obviously why like it's obvious why they weren't right so you have a group of players that probably do rear foot elevated split squats all the time Mm -hmm. this study is being done purely because they want to know this within a club or within a setup so i think if you wanted to be a lot more rigorous you could do something like that definitely um gurf talked about it earlier like six weeks six weeks isn't long enough for for these kind of like if you really wanted to be rigorous and you really wanted to find out you'd do probably 10 weeks then you'd do a washout period then you'd swap the groups over and you'd do 10 weeks again uh another limitation they mentioned was the fact that they didn't have any group where they do a combined training study so realistically the the best result is probably going to come from some combination of the two training methodologies so you'd want a group that does unilateral and bilateral work um and you'd probably get the highest level of significance in terms of training effect from that group so I don't know if you mentioned that, but one of the cons was they were doing, so in addition to their football pre-season training, their specific sports-specific training, you know, like their pitch sessions, they were also doing another structured strength conditioning program, which almost certainly would have impacted them in terms of fatigue. Yeah. And like their kind of motivation to go to the gym, their like their ability to perform the movements to their maximum ability, like their coordination would have been impacted without a doubt, considering you mentioned they had six pitch sessions and then three gym sessions in addition to this i think so another two sessions on top of this which are very fatiguing exercises is one of the issues so ideally you would have them not do any other training or just their pitch training and not any other strength conditioning programming but um yeah and then like the the last limitation i would say is like it was clear from the evidence that some sort of asymmetry was affecting the data uh and then like having the athletes specifically from a sport that has asymmetries inherent in it mm-hmm. um i think like if that was a netball team or a handball team uh you might get some more you might just get slightly cleaner data um and you wouldn't be seeing those kind of left side favored or right side favored in your outcomes yeah if it's me like rugby or something where only like the fly half would they be. were just so broken that they didn't have to train yeah so we want to talk a little bit about the practical implications for people watching for you guys because we want to make these studies relevant to you and any outcomes so you can kind of not only so from a academic point of view where you're just learning things is interesting of course but also we want to be helping you educate yourself learning things help educating you on your own training like is there any kind of principles here or specific details even that you could use in your own training so one of the things we saw from this is essentially that specificity is a thing which we we're under no surprise no so obviously specificity is the the backbone of all adaptation yep uh and it like it's very clear here right if if you go and look at this paper and the link will be in the description uh 
and you look at the outcomes or the results tables, you'll see improvements and you'll see like everything improved across all of them. I think one one metric might have gone down over the course of the training intervention, but almost everything improved. But that doesn't mean like unless it's significant, there's no real point in looking at it. It also means like just because something is significant doesn't mean it's actually going to have a practical implication to you. Uh, but definitely, like you can see from the data that training unilateral work makes you better at unilateral work and training bilateral work makes you better at bilateral work. And that's some combination, like that's really what we want to moving forward is some combination of these two should make you better at everything. Because we saw that the bilateral group improved on some things that the unilateral group didn't improve on. So they had a huge list of like physical performance measures that they, they measured. Um, so their bilateral group improved things that a unilateral group didn't improve on and then vice versa, a unilateral group improved on things that a bilateral group didn't improve on. So the aim of the, they don't know if they made it better at soccer, but they know they made it better at certain aspects of their physical performance. So you as a most likely... 99% sure that you're not an elite soccer player but you are some maybe you might be an athlete or gym or strength training or powerlifter or weightlifter it should be evident like from these results that the best thing you can do is do a huge a combination of boats so you know we always say the thing about like a rising tide lifts all boats so a variance of both of these bilateral work in conjunction with your unilateral work will lift up all of these areas and it can only make you a better athlete if you do both of them there doesn't appear to be a whole lot of negatives now obviously if you take one too far you're going to be you're obviously going to have negatives but as a whole like with sensible programming with unilateral and a lot of and some uh, lots of bilateral work and some unilateral work you will improve everything yeah anything else side fits no uh like let us know in the comments below which areas you are more interested in so like if you're if you're interested in study design let us know if you're just interested in like us covering more studies and getting more like more snippets of this out there let us know yeah. uh, or if you want some deep dives into statistical analyses uh, you can let us know too you can let Fitz know I fucking love him yeah thanks for watching so it really does help if you leave a like and it also lets us know so not only for us when you leave likes you know for like the YouTube algorithm or whatever and other people know but it lets us know the people watching you know yeah. you guys who are sporting is what you like watching so when you click like on something it lets us know that you like this type of video or you like something we did in this so we can do more of that uh, so it's for also for you too as well to help kind of improve the content that you want to get out of us yeah and comment and subscribe pew, pew, pew. Pew, pew. thanks and